There's a Cademan's Call song. I know this is dated. Some of you know who they are. Some of you don't. But it has lines uh, like, uh, say the following. I'm wrapped up in my mother's face with a touch of my father just around the eyes. And the sound of my brother's laugh more wrapped up in what binds our ever distant lives. I remember the lines of that song always. Uh, think about it. Um, I was uh, called JR by my dad's best friend because I was just that. I was my dad's son, kind of in every way. And uh, as I've grown, I've noticed my dad's eyes, my dad's voice, my dad's face every time I look in the mirror, every time I hear a recording of myself. I also notice a touch of my mother's nose. I haven't just inherited their looks, by the way. I have my dad's perfectionism in home projects and my mom's laissez-faire attitude about many other things. I've also inherited some of their other personality traits and interests and even some of their sinful tendencies, their proclivities. I'm tempted in some of the same ways and by the same things that they were tempted. And above all that, I've, I've inherited their faith to a certain degree. Now, there's also health. My dad has MS. My mom has thyroid issues. There's DNA that I've inherited. We all have that from those uh, parents that we have, whether we know them or not. From them, we get things like the cancer gene or hyper, uh, hypertension or heart disease or other things. We're often wrapped up in our parents, whether we know them or not, whether we see them often now or not. There is even this thing when we try to not be them and we end up like them, or at the very least, they are the centrifugal force of our lives, impacting everything we try to do in the converse. It's weird how generations before us affect us now. Like, why does every woman in my family, not mine, I'm speaking as someone else, only live to be 55? And isn't just that. Maybe it's mental illness, maybe it's sin, maybe like divorce is prevalent in my family, or addiction, or abuse, like in my family, why has, this is my family, why has every generation after generation had women who were sexually assaulted or abused? Sins done by someone else impacting this generation and then the next generation and then the next generation. And we don't just see this individually, by the way, right? All uh, society have these generational ills, like systematic sins, whether it's racism or slavery or greed or homelessness or children aborted and uncared for, forced labor, bought and sold. There is moral decay seen in society that neglects God's call to holiness. Like these things are systematic and they seem to infect the DNA of the system and the people wrapped up in that system. I want you to hear this morning one big idea from the text is that dynasties in Israel's history come and go, but golden calves remain. The dynasty of Jeroboam introducing those golden calves to be worshipped in the northern kingdom that king is destroyed. His dynasty is destroyed by Basha. And the house of Basha is undone by Zimri. And Zimri only lasts a week and is overthrown by Omri. There's assassinations. There's attacks. There's violence. And with more kings and more princes, there is more sin. 
and more instability. With each new dynasty, things go from bad to worse. Nabad, Nadab continues in the sins of his father Jeroboam and is killed by Basha. Basha's son Elah is assassinated. In fact, the house of Basha is destroyed by Zimri. Zimri spends a week destroying, and his life ends in flames consumed in his palace. And when we arrive at Omri, we think he might be the one that rises from the ashes, rebuilding Israel and her capital. He seems to be like David, like he succeeds a suicidal king. He fights the Philistines. He commands troops against the siege of a Philistine city. He becomes king after civil war. He divides his reign between two capitals, one of which becomes the city Samaria. And yet, in a few verses that outline his life, we are told he is worse still, worse than all that came before him. Omri, we're told in verse 25, is more wicked than all before him. And his, his adultery is like the last, but goes even further. He's in counterfeit David. We're wondering if we've hit rock bottom, is there an end to all the wickedness? Is there an end to all the violence? Is there an end to the cycle of abuse? Is there an end to all this volatility? And what happens when things are volatile? There's no world building. There's no tending to beauty. Truth gets submerged in a pool of lies. Omri is bettered, we are then told, by his son Ahab. And Ahab is a counterfeit Solomon. Ahab, we are told, was flippant about the word of the Lord. He thought God's word trivial. And so he walked in the sins of his father's father, father, father. I want you to see that the way the golden calves remain, the way we, we become a people who worships idols like sex, money, or power, and the slow roll of growing indifferent and flippant to God's word. This could be in the form of distrusting, did God really say, and then supplanting that word for a different word. It can also come from elevating God's word to a place where it's wood and weapon. Like for Israel, the law becomes this thing in the time of Jesus. But at its base, flippancy to God's word is making God's word something that it isn't, or making it something that is irrelevant. Ahab's flippancy leads him, we're told, to marry a foreign wife named Jezebel from Sidon. This was not the way it was supposed to be for Israel's kings or Israel's people. And so he repeats the sin of his father, Solomon. And Jezebel leads him further up and further in. How? Well, the worship of the god Baal. We read that Ahab builds a temple in Samaria, just like Solomon built a temple to the Lord. Ahab builds a temple in Samaria to Baal. Now, who is Baal? Baal is the, uh, <clears throat> we're first introduced to him through the name Ethbal, and then in Jezebel's name, Zabal. Um, Baal's a prince of the gods, of the Canaanite gods. He's the god of weather and fertility. This comes from the Ugarit, an ancient text in Canaan mythology. It describes Baal's power over the waters. It says, seven years shall Baal fail, Eight, the rider of the clouds. There shall be no dew, no rain, no surging of the two depths, nor the goodness of Baal's voice. In the annual crop cycle, when Baal died and vegetation ceased to grow, the god Mott told Baal to descend into the netherworld uh, and to take your clouds, your wind, your storm, your rains. In another text, a king of Ugarit named Carrot has a vision and reports the heavens rain oil, 
The wadis run with honey. So I know that the mighty one Baal lives. Lo, the prince, the lord of the earth, Baal, exists. So Baal was responsible for two things most valued in an ancient agrarian community. Crops and kids. Food, water, and heirs. If Baal was worshipped, conversely, rain would fall and fruit would come. If Baal was worshipped, wombs would produce offspring. Without these, without this worship to Baal, there might be no life. So Baal reigned in Canaan as this chief god because he was the god most connected, most closely to prosperity, to life. So too are the things that we're most prone to worship. Like in our day, What are we most prone to worship? Things that lead us to a place of prosperity in life. Let's do a little inventory. What things do you set up in your life to provide life? Like to make life life. To guard maybe and secure that life? What do you do? What do you trust in? Worship is ascribing worth. How does one ascribe worth, give work? Like, if I value means, I just want to have the means to do things that my family wants or needs, to have means to determine my job, my, friend, uh, my means to determine my job, my friends, my connection, my outlook, and my approach to life. I'm always working angles to have what I need, money, position, power, connections. This is my idol. And by following through in that trust, I worship it. Like we run to things for provision. We find life here, like energy and joy here. Find a future in this thing. In a sense, we place faith in it. Like trust, this will provide for me. And there's hope placed here. You hope in it. You have ho- your, ho- your hope is realized when you build your life and keep it. And if you lose it, your hope is lost. If regained, so is hope. And love is placed here. I mean, you love this thing that provides security and a future. It is your pretty little pet. You love it. But also, all your relationships become based on it. Now, let's think about this. Where do you hold most of the relationships in your life? It could be in this place. But if not here, like, is it your kid's school, your neighborhood, your job, your community online, your community that rock climbs, your homeschool group? When you love this idol, then your life is formed and built on the idol, and all your love relationships grow around it. And then we pass it along to our offspring, the people we love the most. Faith, hope, love. And oftentimes, like Israel, this isn't so clear-cut. For ancient Israel, there was this blending. There was the adding of the worship of Baal to the worship of Yahweh. And from Jeroboam to Ahab, there was this what's called syncretism. Syncretism is this blending of two or more religious belief systems into a new system or an incorporation of beliefs from unrelated traditions into a new religious tradition. Now, we've seen this in Christianity through the years, whether it's Gnosticism or Manichaeanism. In Israel, it's Judaism and Baalism. I remember uh, walking uh, uh, in some of the high country in China. I visited this Buddhist temple, and there was 
at, at, at one of the walls of the Buddhist temple, there was a, a plethora of gods, little idols. And they were Hindu, they were Christian, they were Buddhist, and there were local tribal deities. And all the gods were given tribute in this place. Starting with Ahab, that syncretism in Israel's history begins to change. And Ahab starts to make instead the northern kingdom a Canaanite religion. And this is how golden calves remain. Abraham, the father of the faith, moved by faith, said the Lord would provide. He called him Jehovah-Jireh. Moses, the first prophet, had told Israel that God would bring them into a land, a land overflowing with life and fruitfulness. Why? Because of the presence of the Lord. As Israel followed the Lord, they would experience his life. And in Leviticus 23, we see that full barns, a prosperous crop, food that fills homes, wine that fills life, was tied to Yahweh, his presence, his word. Following him, they would experience this blessing. But disobedience, we're told in Leviticus 23 and 26, would produce nothing but dust. At the heart of Israel's idolatry was the question, what provides life? Brothers and sisters, what gives you life? Our idols seem to give us life, but in the end, it's just dust and death. Here's what Peter Lightheart says. Idolatry is uncreative. It produces death in identical repetition. The only movement of idolatry is degeneration. And when tolerated and indulged, it breeds more flagrant idolatry. The land that God gives to Israel from which they were to experience his presence and from which they were to fill the land with his good rule and blessing is now through idolatry producing a Canaanite religion. Why? Because even though generations come and go, golden calves remain. Ahab does worse than all that were before him. He makes an altar in Samaria to Baal, a temple He erects an Asherah. Asherah was the Canaanite goddess. She was the mother god. Baal was the father. She was associated with sacred trees, so in worship, poles were erected, usually in high places, open-air cultic spaces for the worship of Asherah. Asherah would bring her full womb of fruit, both children and harvest, to the people if worshipped. In verse 34, in his days, we see that Ahab's idolatry leads to more disobedience. Look at, look at 34. Jericho being rebuilt. Yes, that Jericho that was destroyed, the one where the walls fell down, that one that was left in rubble, the one where God pronounces a curse in Joshua 6.26. If Jericho was rebuilt, then those who would rebuilt it would suffer loss. Jericho was a place of human sacrifice and idol worship. And Ha'il, in the time of Ahab, the Bethelite, suffers loss of both his firstborn and youngest son, fulfilling that curse of Joshua 6, 26. You see, golden calves lead to Baal and Asherah being set up in a temple in Samaria and rebuilding a city dedicated 
to the worship of those gods. It's a, a downward spiral. We, it's like um, I was at the uh, hotel uh, this week, and I was uh, writing this sermon. I was eating breakfast, and there was this picture on the TV of a helix spiraling, an image of DNA. And the program was talking about how DNA replicates over time. There's these, eventually you get to these places where there's these mutations in the DNA. And the image was this spiral image twisting. And as you went further and further down, it then highlighted the mutation. In my family, uh, one of those things has been addiction. My story, some of you know it, is like a Breaking Bad kind of story. Like my grandfather was a drug dealer. My grandfather gave drugs to his children. His children became addicts. My aunt died as an addict, homeless. Like my uh, sister has struggled with addiction. Like it is a, a, a familiar pattern in our story, our family history. Ahab did evil more than before. Dynasties come and go golden calves remain. And Kings lays this out. Basically, generationally, the seventh generation in the book of Kings, that number in the Bible for fullness and completion. In the south in Judah, the seventh king is Ahiza of Judah. He's preceded by Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijam, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram. He's the seventh. He's explicitly compared to Ahab in 2 Kings 8, for his wickedness. The seven Davidic kings that follow Ahiza culminate in Manasseh, who follows Jehoash, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, who is the most Ahab-like of all the southern kings. In each case, Peter Leihart says, the seventh king in the sequence is the object of prophetic condemnation. The seventh king's sins bring an interruption or end of the dynasty of which he's a part. And then the kings in the Sabbath, seventh slot, bring the sins of Israel and Judah to completion. And the Lord of the Sabbath brings rest through judgment. There's this downroll spiral built into the mutated DNA of sin, and God in his mercy, eventually brings rest by his judgment. One of the things about our sin is that we're sinful through and through, but we're never as sinful as we could be. There's this restraining of evil that God mysteriously does in the world. However, we're told here that God's anger is kindled against Ahab. Literally, his nose becomes hot. We most often see this in Israel's idolatry. It's a a term that connotes God's jealousy. God's anger is righteous in that if God alone brings life, then idols and the worship of idols is that uncreative process that produces death in identical repetition. And that kindles God's jealous anger for his children when they go wayward and pursue the way of death. When we reject life for Sure death, God is grieved of heart, and his anger is kindled. And in the story of the kings, God's kindled anger is mercy. How does it work? Well, the king builds, the prophet confronts, idolatries continue, judgment is delayed, and then judgment comes in destruction or exile. 
We see this in Solomon in 1 Kings 9. We saw it two weeks ago with the man of God. The judgment in the context of covenant is a severe mercy, and it serves as a warning. This is the mercy the uh, the Lord uses to turn our hearts. And God wants to turn your heart this morning. In all the ways that you or I are trying to find provision, faith, hope, and love in things that don't bring life, God is calling us back to finding truth, uh, finding hope and love and faith in him. So enter Elijah. He is the man of God. Elijah disrupts the dynasty of Omri without warning or introduction. Nothing is said about his clan or his history other than he's a Tishbite. We aren't sure where Tishbe actually is, by the way. It does say he lived in Gilead, an area across from the Jordan. He has no fame, no notoriety. It is like he is blown in by the wind, like the Holy Spirit. The wind blows where it wills. The word he delivers is delivered with a sign, just like the man of God from two weeks ago, where he split the altar of Jeroboam and reduced it to ash. Eliza re- arrives with a word and a sign. He's del- it's delivered in the form of wait and see. He says, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And just like the plagues in Egypt, the word that Elijah says produces a clash of gods, of Baal versus Yahweh, the one true God. And we're going to see this played out in the coming weeks. But here, the word of the Lord that Elijah announces clashes against the word of Baal, his word and his offer of life. If Baal is the God that produces water, fertility, fruitfulness, life, God can test that word with his own by saying, there will be neither dew nor rain, except by my word. Who gives life, Yahweh or Baal? Which God actually lives, Yahweh or Baal? Ahab and Jezebel are leading the people in the politics of a social religion, a type of civil religion where power and life is secured where? In serving the Baals, in securing power and a future through the fertility of the land by offering worship to Baal. Drought and famine in ancient Israel, uh, the primary agricultural season was the winter months. The dry, hot summer brought the monsoon rains of autumn. If the rains did not come, the, the ground would be dry and hard, and unplowable. Wells would not be replenished. Rains also often came in the spring, bringing moisture needed for crops to flourish. If these rains didn't come, the harvest would be destroyed. Now, much of the narrative of Elijah is set in the plain of Jezreel. Each morning, the dew in the valley would be heavy in this plain. Crop production would be possible here, regardless of the weather patterns. But Elijah says, listen, there will be no rain or do. Why? Because Yahweh intends to show Israel and Ahab there is no other God that can bring life. It is the Lord. He is God. He is the one in his presence who brings judgment, a form of actual life, by the way, and in his absence brings death, and there is no other. No other God can bring life. It is the Lord who controls life and death and fruitfulness and barrenness. And thus it is the Lord who is God and no other. He is the ever-present God. So when you and I 
attempt to find life in cisterns of our own making, like pots or wells that we dig up to try to spring life up, in the end, God will allow us to only eat the dust. How often have you tasted the dust of your idol-making and your worship? Now think it through for yourself. I can think time and time again where the Lord has brought my search for life in broken cisterns to me eating dust. And that is God's mercy. Now when Elijah delivers the message, it's the word of the Lord, but with it, notice, he also receives this word and is under its obligation. Elijah embodies what Israel was supposed to be. Look at verses 2 and 6. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you. Now think about that for a second. We are kind of going through like turmoil, right? Culturally, like, like our money and inflation. And like in this time, friends, like how does that unsettle your soul? And, and what are you tempted to run to and seek out as a result of this time? What kind of securities are you trying to invest in? Now think about that for a second. Because notice what God calls Elijah to do. Go to the other side of the Jordan, and I'm going to feed you, and I'm going to water you. And so he went. He did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook that is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is the food command like we read about in chapter 13. Elijah hears and obeys the command, unlike the man of God. He, he moves, by the way, the east of Jordan is more inhospitable. There's no normal food supply here. So when God sends him here, he's in part delivering Elijah both from Ahab and Jezebel, because he's going in hiding. But the deliverance kind of seems worse, right? Think about Israel in the wilderness. Elijah, too, goes to the wilderness. He's, he's drawn away from the new Pharaoh and his wife. And it's here that the Lord provides. The Lord who knows the fall of a single sparrow, who commands the ravens, birds do the bidding of their creator. Just as Israel received bread and meat in the wilderness, Elijah eats bread and meat even more liberally twice a day. And as the Lord is Elijah's provider, he is, in some ways, hidden in the shadow of God's wings. Spurgeon says this about this text. He says, remember to the prayer which I quoted just now, give us this day our daily bread, not our weekly bread, not our monthly bread, not our annual stores, but give us our daily bread. Friends, if there's anything in this church that I know, like the temptation for us is towards seeking out sustainability and means, and success in ways apart from the Lord. That's what I struggle with. That's what you struggle with. We, we, we don't want daily bread. We want annual bread that returns. Here's what Spurgeon says. God is pleased to give some of his servants in the bulk, but there are so many others 
who live hand to mouth. And perhaps, though not best for the flesh, it's best for faith. For we're apt, when mercies come regularly, to forget from whence they flow. It's God's care for you as you trust in him, as you hope in him, as you move in love for him. The here of deliverance will seem more unsteady in some ways than the there of before. But here you see that idols are deaf and mute and lifeless, and the Lord is alive. Like, Danette and I have had, like, so many times in our life where, like, circumstantially things were bleak, and yet the supernatural arm of the Lord extended in ways that we could not describe. Elijah is cared for by God. He sends ravens and water in the brook. And because Elijah eats, he will feed others, which we'll see next week. But the brook dries up still. And this we'll see in Elijah uh, he will, uh, that we will see Elijah tested in his own faith even further. But sit here for a second as we end. What is the dynasty of your golden calves? Jeroboam's house is destroyed, just as Ahijah predicted. Israel's royal houses come and go as prophets announce their doom. Dynasties come and go, but golden calves remain. How have you known this in your story? In your story, what are those things replicated over and over again? And when you feel the weight of that, when you sit under the weight of the replication of your father's story in you, of your mother's story in you, of your great-great-grandparents' story in you, in our nation's story of us, when that story continues to be replicated in you, what do you do? Where do you run? When the golden calves remain, where do you go? Elijah introduces us to the idea of the faithfulness of the one. He is the one who preserves something for the all. And this is what is at the heart of generational sin, right? It's original. It's part of the original sin that just keeps trickling down into our stories. And yet... There is one who can supplant those sins. Elijah is a model of that. He uh, dries up the water of handmade wells and cisterns. And there's one from which living water flows, not a cesspool of failed promises of our idols, but life as we trust and bank on him. There is a well within our hearts that springs up to life, we're told. A spirit who renews us in the places inside of us, in our histories, in our DNA. That renewing life and love is the only way we will ever supplant the chains of golden calves. And that comes from Jesus. Jesus is the true and better Elijah. We're going to hear that again and again and again through the series. So what do we do with our golden calves in our Baal worship? We relent and throw ourselves upon the mercy of God offered to us in Jesus. We trust that when we are united to Jesus by faith, our stories, our histories, and our futures are changed. Those generational patterns don't have to be ours. As the gospel breaks in, it breaks the chains that hold us and bind us. And the dynasty of Jesus, which is a dynasty of joy and life and peace, 
is replicated then in our life. It's the true and better mutation that takes our life and undoes all the past and makes us new. And Elijah's word provides hope for Israel that this is what might happen to them if they turn and return back to the Lord. It's a severe mercy, this famine, where there's no dew and no rain and where brooks dry up. So if you sit there this morning in a dried up place where there is no dew and there's no fruitfulness, it is the mercy of the Lord to you so that you might turn to the Jesus who alone breaks the chain of our sin and provides us life. Let's pray. God, help us. Um, Golden calves don't have to remain is what you tell us because of Jesus. And so I pray that we would thrust ourselves upon his mercy this morning again at the table as we uh, come to take and eat, that we would taste that mercy on our lips. A God who is present, who condescends to us, just like you condescended to Elijah and fed him by ravens and a brook, you seek to feed us with the living uh, waters and a living bread. And so I pray that we'd come and feast on you today by faith, that we would see in these common ordinary elements that you are present and you mean to sustain us, to continue to follow you, no matter where we might find ourselves this morning. And so I pray for us, God, to see that, that you would encourage our hearts in it. And if there's anyone here this morning that has not thrust themselves on God's mercy, I pray, God, that today would be the day that they would relent of worshiping idols that are just lifeless. They would turn from eating dust and come to you and find life. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the Son, our recreator. In his name we pray, amen.